0: is where we will start this morning. So we are are back together and let's go ahead and pray and then we'll Uh, turn our attention to the subject matter this morning. Father, we know that you hold all things together through the working of your Son and that you are orchestrating all things for your glory and that what you ask of us, what you demand of us, is that everything we do, we do towards your glory, and so we pray that um, as we think about the way that is happening biblically, that you would give us insight and make this profitable for us, and pray this in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, we are returning now after four weeks of having a separate men's and ladies class, and again, thank you for your involvement and participation there, and thank you, Mrs. Peterson, for... Uh, teaching the latest class. I heard good reports about that. And this morning then we're going to begin to return our attention to the subject matter of God's providence. And um, just for for your knowledge and just so that you kind of understand the direction that I'm following why I would go this way and for something to add to your library if you're inclined to read that, I'm primarily but not exclusively relying upon the material in John Piper's book, Providence. It is, although a recent book, probably the the magnum opus on the subject matter of God's providence in this world. And so um, if you're not familiar with Piper, you know, I'd I give my standard disclaimers about him. There are some things that we would be concerned about, but he is a clear writer and he is worth reading. And he is usually very helpful. So uh, so the subject matter is providence. We, we are, of course, very familiar with the sovereignty of God, God's power and right to do anything that he wishes. And there is a sense then in which providence is the, the activity of God's sovereignty, the things that he is doing. Uh, our word providence is actually a Latin word that means to see before, to pro-video, um, and I think that we should perhaps, maybe we would find it helpful if we would think of God's providence as God's provision, because they come from similar concepts, that before, before we get to the place, God is working ahead to bring it about. This is part of the idea, to, to not just simply to see ahead. Right? And there's a legitimate place for us as human beings to be able to look ahead. Right, The prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself. As As we live long enough, we should be able to look at events and look at people and look at subjects and look at conversations, and we should be able to figure out that there's going to be trouble down that way and skirt it. But that's not what providence is referring to. Providence is God looking all the way down to the end of... I don't want to say human existence, but time as we know it to what he wants to happen then and orchestrating and arranging all things prior to that to accomplish that end. Um, He says in the book of Isaiah that he declares the end from the beginning. And so, right, when God starts something, the finished product is already out there in all things then, right? I mean, we would... We would kind of summarize the activity of God's providence in Romans chapter eight—that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to His purpose. And so, uh, I think one of the things that we do—and maybe maybe I just am the one that do—and when I when I think specifically about God's providence, I tend to think of it maybe on more on a more, much smaller scale, um, the way God arranges things so that you know. Boys meet girls and they get married and, you know, it was kind of unexpected and unattended and it is part of God's providence and those small things and all of those things are true. But when God addresses the subject in the Bible, he tends to to deal with it in a much larger framework. And so this morning we're going to just kind of talk about the, the exodus within God's providence and the way that the exodus... In the Old Testament, becomes the template for what God is ultimately going to do in the course of human history. Right? The defining moment in the in the nation of Israel's existence is that Exodus that God brings them back to that very, very many times over the course of their history. Um, it is what makes their covenant relationship possible. Um, God would have never entered into the law of Moses with them, the covenant, and claimed them for his people had he not brought them out of the land of Egypt first. And so all of their service and all of their ministry is oriented around the fact that God has rescued them from the clutches of Egypt. Again, this is great typology and symbolism for us, as well as Reality for the Israelites. So let's just begin to talk a little bit about the way that this works out providentially. And so be, we want—I want to begin in Genesis chapter 15, long before the time of the Exodus. God had predicted and had worked in the nation of Israel in such a way that that those things would come to pass. Exodus, or I'm sorry, yeah, Exodus. Or I'm sorry. Did I say Exodus? Genesis 15. I'm sorry. I got Genesis 15 in my notes and my Bible open to Exodus 15. So, <clears throat> let's hope that's not an indicator of the way the day will go. Genesis chapter 15 and verse number 12. Genesis 15:12. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, thou shalt be buried in a good old age, But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So, this is the passage that predicts Israel's entry into Egypt and their 400 year captivity and their deliverance from Egypt. And it sets the course of the time, right? They're going to go and they're going to be there 400 years. And in the fourth generation, they're going to come out because, and and what, what he's referring to there is the conquest of the land. And that's not our subject matter this morning, but but God's justification, if you will, for giving the land of promise to the Israelites instead of the native inhabitants is the continued wickedness of the native inhabitants. And God tolerated it and tolerated it, and tolerated it until he drove them out at the hands of the Israelis. So, right, so long before we get to that point, I mean, anybody who is a genuine believer is is going to have this as part of their mindset that, that there's prediction. And, of course, as you read through Genesis, we read about, you know, this is well before Isaac is born, and then Isaac's going to be born, and he's going to have twin boys, and Jacob is going to have 12 sons, and it is his family that is going to be taken into the land of Egypt, and then they are ultimately going to find themselves enslaved in Egypt. And, and that is where we take up in Exodus chapter 1, which will be our next passage. The, the events leading up to, to the Exodus are also providentially arranged by God. Here's what I'm going to do. Right, Here are the rough guidelines for what I'm going to do. It. I'm going to send you down to Egypt not giving you a date and time for that you're going to be there about 400 years not giving you a date and time for that giving you a context for that here's what's going to happen you're going to come out you're going to come out with great substance and you Abram you're just you're going to die and you're going to be buried and you're going to live out a good life this is this is all pertinent to you but it isn't going to happen to you and and then when when the time is right and when I bring about my purposes then then this is what I'm going to do. And so in Exodus chapter 1, 2, and 3, then all of that all of that is being brought to kind of a culmination um, or a little bit of a climax. The the Israelites have been relocated to Egypt at the end of Genesis. They have become enslaved to them and we see there Lot there. And although they are enslaved, God has blessed the nation in such a way that it increases um, <clears throat> in, in size. It is growing, and in fact it grows to the place that it is a threat to the Egyptians. And if you look at Exodus chapter 2, and in verses 23 through 25, God prepares the people for their departure by making their lives difficult in Egypt. He doesn't make their lives easy in Egypt. And and the reason for that is obvious, is it not? If God made their lives easy in Egypt, they wouldn't want to leave Egypt. And so, Exodus chapter 2, verse number 23, it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage. And they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. And and, and please, I, I don't think that any of us would, but please don't misread verse number 24. It's not like God forgot the covenant. It is that. Right, remembering has, like visiting does in the Old Testament, the idea of now taking action upon what he had promised. Right? God hadn't forgotten that there was a covenant, but God had not yet chosen to act on that covenant. And these are all things that are built into the Abrahamic covenant. And so God providentially brought the Israelites to this place, Expanded the nation, and we know almost, I mean, not exactly, well, actually, we do have the census, but we know that this is about 604,000 men, and we assume over the age of 20, and we assume about 604,000 women over the age of 20, and we, you know, then there are any number of children, a substantial number of children um, under the age of 20 at the time that this exodus. So, so God has really blessed this people numerically, but he has really burdened them um, emotionally and physically at the hands of the Egyptians and to the place that they are now asking to be delivered from what is going on. And then God, of course, supernaturally or providentially arranges for the man that would be his deliverer, his instrument of delivery. And this is chapter number two, in which we have this man who is born literally under a sentence of death because the government had commanded that all male babies be killed. He is spared. He is raised as Egyptian nobility, and yet his murder of a man brings about his criminal status as, a, as an Egyptian noble. And if you look down to verses 11 through 14, this event also raises questions about his ability to lead the nation of Israel came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out unto his brethren and he looked on their burdens and he spied an Egyptian smiting an Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that way. And when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together. And he said to him that did the wrong, wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? And he said, who made thee a prince and judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou kills the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. And it was known. And so it became a blot on Moses, not only as a Hebrew, but as an Egyptian. And yet he is the man that God would supernaturally have to lead the nation. And when you get to Exodus chapter 3 what you have is not only Moses' call, we'll return to that in just a moment, but Moses then goes through the reasons why he himself is not qualified to be the leader. So again, remember folks, the subject matter we're contemplating is God's providence, the way that God is seeing to getting done what he wants to have done. And it is is not the kind of trajectory that Most of us would have invented. Who's going to be your point man? Well, he's a guy that the Egyptians hate. He's a guy that the Hebrews don't particularly like. And he's a guy who doesn't consider himself qualified for the task. Perfect candidate. The perfect candidate. And there is a reason for that. There is a reason that those kinds of things make a man the perfect candidate. And that brings us then in Exodus chapter 3 to one of the most important revelations in the Bible. And of course, we know we have a book of revelation, and we spent a whole bunch of time talking about that. And when we got all done, we always, have, we always come back to the same questions and the same difficulties. But here is a revelation, folks, that is truly revolutionary when it comes to what God is doing in the world. And it becomes the foundation for what God is doing in the world. So, Exodus chapter 10. Or I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 3 and verse number 10. God says, Come now therefore, and I will send thee to Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say unto me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thou shalt say unto them, unto the children of Israel, I am, hath sent me unto you. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever and this is my memorial unto all generations. So it is at this point, folks, in the unfolding of the story, what, right? I mean, one way we can look at the big picture is to ask what God is doing in the world and probably the more common way that we ask the question is to ask, what is my place in this world? Why am I here? And what does God want from me? And the answer to that question, folks, is really found in large part in the Exodus. This is what God is going to do in the world. And this is what God wants from humanity In our King James Bibles, and I think it's true in probably about every translation that we have, the all-capitalization of the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is the way that Bible translators translate the word that we call Jehovah. And probably more common today is not to use the expression Jehovah, but to use the word Yahweh. And we don't really know how the word is pronounced, folks, because, number one, Hebrew doesn't have any vowels. There are no written vowels in Hebrew. It is just 22 consonants. And we have four of them that make up the word Jehovah. And so you can either put a vowel after every consonant and get Jehovah. Or you can just use a couple of vowels and be Yahweh. Or we may find out one day that we're not really pronouncing it correctly at all. That's that's really neither here nor there. Okay? So we have God, of course, which is, I don't want to say, I don't because I don't want to demean the word, but it's not a generic word. But the word that is translated God can be used to describe powerful human beings. But the word Lord, capital L, all caps, L-O-R-D, is used always and exclusively to describe Jehovah. By the time we get to Exodus chapter 3, that word has been used 162 times. It's used 162 times in the book of Genesis. Jehovah. Jehovah. We have it just Jehovah, 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 Jehovah. The word means something like I exist. Our translators have translated it accurately this way I am. Just I am. Before we are ever informed that it is God's name, what should we call him, we are really informed about God's identity. Who are you? I am the one that is. That is how God God describes himself in the most simple terms possible. Who are you? I am. I just am. There's of course a lot built into that, but and we'll talk about some of those, but God never was. He's just it's just it's a, a, a continual eternal present tense. I am. That is how He identifies himself, the one who always is. And so Moses is told to explain to the leaders of Israel that the one who is has sent them, right I mean here's this guy who is right He has been discolored in the eyes of the Egyptians or the the Israeli so folks. we know the story is spread, right Moses looked this way and that and he didn't see anybody else and so he killed the Egyptian and he thought he got away with it. And the very next day, he was outed by a Hebrew. And the very next verse tells us that Pharaoh hears this, right? This is big news in the country of Egypt. Who killed the Egyptian? The guy who was adopted by Pharaoh. So here is a man who is discolored. Now he's going to go back 40 years later, and he is going to come in and claim to to be God's representative. And who should I say send me? You tell them that the one who is sent you. Right? So we can just kind of pause there. Again, this is essential revelation. Who is God? He is the one who is. He has no beginning because he is the one who is. He has no end. He is just the one who is. He will always be the same because he is the one who is. He will always be indestructible. Because he is the one who is. I just am. He is the absolute reality. And when people go, I don't believe in God, God God could simply respond by pointing out, but I am. Deny me all you want. I have my own existence. He does not rely upon anything, nothing external. He doesn't eat. He doesn't breathe. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't need to be protected. He doesn't need to be preserved. He doesn't even need, I mean, folks, for whatever eternity looked like before we came on the scene, he didn't need a group of people to argue for and defend his existence. He is the one who is. He's just there. And in fact, everything that exists depends upon him because he is, of course, before all things and all things exist because of him. And because he is the one whose existence is within himself, he is the one who decides what is good and bad, what is ugly and beautiful, what is right and what is wrong. And so the exodus then, folks, becomes in a very real way a reflection of his name. What is the Exodus about? It is about the God who is. He didn't tell Abraham what his name was. and He didn't tell Isaac, and he didn't tell Jacob, and as far as we know, he didn't tell Noah. But right here, as we're getting ready to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, In this, again, very real and yet highly symbolic event, who are you? I am the one who is. That is my name. That is my name. My name is, of course, I am. Jumping ahead to Exodus chapter 6, One of the things that the Exodus is designed to do is make his name known to Israel. Exodus chapter 6 and verse number 1, Then the Lord said unto Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand shall he let them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. And God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am, right, there it is, folks, I am Jehovah. I am the one who is. And I appeared unto Abraham and Isaac and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty, but by the name Jehovah was I not known to them. I didn't reveal myself at that time as the one who is. Verse 4 And I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am Jehovah. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt, the Egyptians, and I will rid you of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments, and I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you, God, and ye shall know that I am Jehovah, your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you into the land concerning which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for an heritage. I am Jehovah. I am the one who is. And so part of the purpose, folks, of the Exodus at this point in time is to make God's name known to the whole nation. I didn't make it known to Abraham. I didn't make it known to Isaac. I didn't make it known to Jacob. But I'm making it known to you, and I want all of Israel to know I am the one who is. Look at Exodus chapter 10. In verse number 1. And again, I'm just going to translate it. And Jehovah said unto Moses, Go in unto Pharaoh, For I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I might show these my signs before him, and that thou mayest tell it in the ears of thy son and of thy son's son, what things I have wrought in Egypt, and my signs which I have done among them, that ye may know that I am Jehovah. So God wants Israel to know that He is Jehovah. That He is the one who just is. And again, I don't mean that into any way minimize that. God right in what way we sometimes you you listen to people talk. Even people who claim to believe in God and they think that there are only incremental differences between us and deity. But that is very insulting to the Lord. He is the one who exists all by himself and we are aware of this, folks. We do not exist all by ourselves. You have to eat and you have to breathe as do I. I am dependent completely upon my environment and the world that I inhabit for my survival. I can live on planet Earth. I can't live under planet Earth. I can't live in water. I can't live in the atmosphere. I am completely and totally dependent on other things for my existence. That is just not true of God. He just exists. And he wants his people to know I just exist. I exist. That is my name. But he doesn't just want Israel to know it, folks. As we read through the Exodus account, we realize that he wants the Egyptians to know it. Go back to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7 and verse number 1. And Jehovah said unto Moses, See, I have made thee a God, small g God, but that's the word there, Adonai. I've made you a strong one, a mighty one. To Pharaoh, and Aaron thy brother shall be thy prophet, thy spokesman. And thou shalt speak all that I command thee. And Aaron thy brother shall speak unto Pharaoh, and, he, and, and that he send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that I may lay my hand upon Egypt and bring forth mine armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Jehovah. When I stretch forth my hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. And Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded them, so did they. So God wants his people to know that he is Jehovah, and God wanted Egypt to know that he was Jehovah. So again, folks, if we ask the question, why did the events unfold the way that they did? Why wouldn't Pharaoh just roll over and surrender? Well, because rolling over and surrendering is not the ambition. Demonstrating the self-existence of God is the ambition. So let's make Pharaoh as strong as he can be. And let's make him as obstinate as we can make him. And then I'll crush him. And then as we're leaving, the Egyptians will know that your God is stronger than their God. And in fact, folks, if you jump ahead to Exodus chapter 9, God specifically wants Pharaoh to know that he is Jehovah. Now we know, of course, that the Pharaohs had a deity-like status in the land of Egypt. And at this particular point in history, the Egyptians were probably the most powerful nation that anybody in the Middle East could have envisioned. So there's nobody stronger. There's nobody greater. There's nobody more powerful in all the world than Pharaoh. So he, of course, is the necessary adversary. Exodus chapter 9, verse number 13. And Jehovah said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning, and stand before Pharaoh, and say unto him, Thus saith Jehovah, God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart, and upon thy servants, and upon thy people, that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. For now I will stretch out my hand, that I may smite thee and thy people with pestilence. And thou shalt be cut off from the earth. And in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up. For to show in thee my power and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. As yet exaltest thou thyself against my people and wilt thou not let them go? So God wants Pharaoh to know, and in fact, folks, again, to go back and ask, well, what is the purpose of the plagues? Well, the purpose of the plagues is Exodus chapter 7 and verse number 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am Jehovah when I stretch forth my hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Exodus 7.17, thus saith the Lord, in this thou shalt know that I am Jehovah. Just reading through now, you can try and turn to it if you want, but Exodus 7.8.9, God begins to explain his logic in the plagues. Exodus 7.17, thus saith the Lord, in this thou shalt know that I am Jehovah. Behold, I will smite with the rod that is in mine hand upon the waters which are in the river, and they shall be turned to blood. And you'll know that I am the one who is. Exodus 8:10. He said, "Tomorrow, and he said, be it according to thy word that thou mayest know that there is none like unto the Jehovah our God." Exodus 8:22, "I will sever in the day the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there to the end that thou mayest know that I am Jehovah in the midst of the earth." Exodus 9.14, For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart, and upon thy servants, and upon thy people, that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. 9.29, Moses said to him, As soon as I am gone out of the city, I will spread abroad my hands unto the Lord, unto Jehovah, and the thunder shall cease, neither shall there be any more hail, that thou mayest know how that the earth is Jehovah's. Exodus 14.4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart that he shall follow after them, and I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts that the Egyptians may know that I am Jehovah. And they did so. Exodus 14.18, And the Egyptians shall know that I am Jehovah when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh and upon his chariots and upon his horsemen. You see, folks, the Exodus is not just history. It's not just something that we want our ele- elementary age children to learn about in Sunday school. And it isn't even really about God's great power. It is about God's name. It is about God's identity. And in fact, all future ministry is vested in this very concept. You may still have your Bible open to Exodus 916. I read it just a moment ago. This is what God says to Pharaoh. And in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up. All right, let's just let's just pause for a moment All right let's take a big breath you can fill in any name that you wish here but i'm going to pick two for this cause have i raced up president trump and for this cause have i raced up president biden Arguably, the most important office on the face of the planet right now. The presidency of the United States. For this cause have I raised you up. Back to Exodus 9.16. For to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. See, it's, it's theology, folks, not just history. That my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Turn, if you would, to Joshua chapter 2, and I'm going to... Just try to... Because <clears throat> we will no doubt work our way through this in more detail in the weeks ahead. In Joshua chapter 2, you have the record of probably the very first Gentile convert, Rahab. She's not a Jew. Joshua chapter 2, and verse number 9. She said unto the men, I know that Jehovah has given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. How do we know this? For we have heard how Jehovah dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what ye did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom ye utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For Jehovah your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Now therefore I pray you. Swear unto me, by Jehovah, since I have showed you kindness that ye will also show kindness unto my father's house and give me a true token, and that ye will save alive my father and my mother and my brethren and my sisters in all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. And so Rahab the harlot, and she's always Rahab the harlot, comes down to us in the genealogies of the Messiah. And what is her testimony? We have heard about the name. And we are afraid of the name. And we believe in the power of the name. Jehovah. And if you would, folks, jump ahead to third John. I'm going to just <clears throat> not even try to delve into it in this time as it is manifested in the book of Revelation. We come across this expression occasionally in our New Testaments, the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord. And I would just encourage you folks, when we're reading something like that, the name of the Lord, that we, I mean, there's nothing wrong with thinking Jesus, but go back to the Exodus and use that as our starting point for the name. God, what are you doing? Well, I'm going to bring you specifically into this place so that I might deliver you out so that everybody will know my name. And I want Israel to know my name, and I want Egypt to know my name, and I want Pharaoh to know my name. I am the one who is. And Rahab came to faith by believing on the name. And in Third John, there's only of course one chapter, verses 5 and 6, verse number 5, Beloved, Thou doest faithfully whatsoever Thou doest to the brethren and to the strangers which have borne witness of Thy charity before the church. Whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. Now, he's talking here about supporting missionaries. That's the context. I'm not going to go back and try and prove that. But that's what he's talking about. Right? One church receiving a missionary and then helping that missionary go on his journey. Verse number 7. Because that for his name's sake, they went forth taking nothing of the Gentiles. This is, folks, this is what. I'm not trying to reduce this to a transaction like buying a set of clothes. But it is a transaction. In exchange for submitting to the name and believing on the name, God will forgive your sins and give you eternal life. But there's no other way to get eternal life than by believing on the name and submitting to the name. Because it's all about the name. It's all about the name. It is not all about getting as many people out of hell as, as can happen. Although God has expressed in numerous occasions His unmitigated delight if every human being got saved. But they will only get saved as they submit to the name. And the proclamation of the gospel is the proclamation of the name. And God doesn't simply... Let me Let me just run through this very quickly because I, I can see that I've already use my time but right so i'm just going to give you some references here if you're taking notes okay god wants everybody to know how glorious his name is that his name is filled with glory exodus 14:17 and 18 our king james bible reads when i have gotten me honor but the word is glory it is the translation of the hebrew word for glory which is actually a word that means weight And he doesn't just want people to know who he is. He wants people to worship him for whom he is. Psalm 86, 9 and 10. Just a couple of references to back this up. He wants us to glorify his name. You are the God who is. And to worship his name. And he wants us to praise him because we love and enjoy the fact that he is who he is. Psalm 66, that's much of the content of the entire psalm, is people singing praises to God because he is the one who exists. All that God does for us and can do for us, folks, is a consequence of God being what he is, who he is. And so providentially, right, to go way back into human history, God has been orchestrating all things so that people would honor and glorify his name. And if that, I'm going to stop, and I'd be happy to, as always, talk to you privately.